This is going to be our part three of Jacob's Marathon Life, a VIP funeral. And again, just another picture of how this is uh, immensely practical, I think, to, re- to, to real life. Um, on November 30th, the 41st president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, he passed away in his Houston home. And he was uh, surrounded by, by friends and family. Uh, it, was a, it was a big, big deal, right? One of the presidents passing away, it's big news. Uh, President Trump declared a national day of mourning, and flags were at half-staff from December 1st to December 30th. Uh, actually, it wasn't just things going on in the U.S. in terms of mourning. Flags in the U.K. and Canada were also lowered to half-staff. And in Kuwait, uh, the, the Kuwait Towers displayed an image of him on their buildings. The, his funeral was not just a, one like short day of a funeral. It was a, there were three stages that happened from December 3rd to December 6th. It started in Houston, uh, where he passed away. There was a small ceremony at the Ellington Field Joint Reserve Base. Then day two was in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral. That's the, the funeral that was televised that some of you may have seen parts of. And then the third stage was back to Houston again, and it began at the Ellington base there, and then um, went on to St. Martin's Episcopal Church the next day. It was the largest ever funeral flyover in U.S. naval history, and then his body was transported by train to College Station, uh, Texas, where the George Bush Presidential Library is, and he was interred with his wife, Barbara, and his daughter, Robin. That's a big to-do. That's a lot going on, and it's rare that a death in our world captures that much attention, that much media attention, that that much of the world is kind of tuned in and following what is going on, and it's rare that there's that amount of ceremony for one person's death. And regardless of how we might feel about Bush Sr. or his political policies, this was, and we, I think we can see by the reaction, this was an influential and an important man. And why do I share this story? Well, I think it's because there's a lot of parallels between that thing, that event that we just witnessed, how it affected so many people, and our passage today as we look at the death of Jacob. This, this state funeral, this long period of mourning, As we see the end of the life of this great man of God today, one that we've been looking at for the last four months, chapters 25 through 50, half of the book of Genesis has been devoted to the life of Jacob. As we look at those things, I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture of how God is at work fulfilling his promises and preparing us as his people for what is to come. And I don't want us to lose sight of how immensely practical this is for our own lives today, almost 4,000 years later. What comes into your mind when you think about your own death? What do you think about when you think about dying? I remember in grade school, I was probably about 10 years old. It was in the bathroom 
like during a break and all, all the boys were in the bathroom. And I don't know, somebody said something about dying. And I just remember, it's one of these vivid childhood memories that's burned into my mind. I just remember saying, I'm not afraid to die. And I didn't, I didn't really know the Lord at that time. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm, you know, I know Jesus, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I just, I had this like feeling like, I'm not afraid to die. <clears throat> about six months ago, I was in Appleton uh, there's a, a friend, I was at the YMCA in Appleton, and there's a, a guy there that I've been getting to know a little bit, and uh, he, he's kind of been following some of the, of the church planting stuff, and he's talked to me a bunch about, you know, how things are going, and I don't think he's walking with the Lord, but one time he just asked me flat out, he's like, are you afraid to die? We were just talking, I don't know, we were just talking about something, he's like, are you afraid to die? And I said, no. I said, I'm not afraid to die. Like, I know where I'm going, which is a very different reaction that I had from when I was a 10-year-old child. But whether it was my 10-year-old self or my 38-year-old self, I ultimately can say that's true, right? I'm not afraid to die. But do I, do we actually live consistently with what we claim to be true? I pray this morning that our look at Jacob's death and burial would cause us to proclaim with Paul, as we saw in our New Testament reading, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We've covered a lot of ground, especially in these last five weeks. We've been covering two chapters a week. It's been a lot of material to get through. But we're going to slow down a little bit, thankfully, uh, in the next couple weeks. We're going to look here at the last, just the last few verses of chapter 49, starting in verse 28, and then chapter 50. Over the next two weeks, we're going to cover that portion. All right, well, let's go to our passage, enough introduction, um, Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 28, and I'll read through chapter 50. Verse 14. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. 
And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the land at the field of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of the Lord. What is the point of this story that we have here? What does Jacob's return to the promise to the land of promise? Why does it really matter for us? I've got a few questions for us to think about to consider. Is it a stretch to say that it points us to the resurrection of our own bodies and the ultimate hope that we have in Christ? Another question to think about. What do the Egyptian and Canaanite responses to Jacob's death show about God's faithfulness to his people and his grand plan of redemption? Third question. Is it okay to grieve? Is it okay to grieve? And how can we grieve as those who have hope? Paul says we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. We grieve as those who have hope. Last question is, do you ever think about what people are going to say about you after you die? Or what people might say at your funeral? Well, we start off here with the death of Jacob. Verse 28 is kind of a continuation of what we saw last week. He blessed his sons. He blessed the 12 tribes and That was a blessing, it says, that is suitable to them. And remember, some of them were kind of in the form of blessings. Some of them were in the form of curses. And then Jacob commands his sons. He says, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with them. Take me back home. Bury me with Abraham and Sarah, my grandparents. Bury me with Isaac and Rebekah, my parents. And bury me with Leah, my wife. This phrase here that, I'm to be gathered to my people is an interesting phrase because in Abraham's death in chapter 25, it says that Abraham was gathered to his people. But if we think about that, this can't refer to a physical burial place, right? Because Abraham was the father of this new nation. So there were no people to be gathered to. And Abraham was the first one. Abraham was buried alone in this cave at Machpelah. And he was the first one there. So this, has, this idea of being gathered to my people 
has to have a spiritual meaning. It has to be beyond just, hey, take me back and bury me in the same cave as where my ancestors were. So we read then at the end of this section in verse 33 that Jacob draws up his feet and he is gathered to his people. I want us to think about this. What does it look like to die well? What does it look like to die well? I've never been at somebody's bedside when they've taken their last breath. I've been close. I've been with someone like the day before, and I've, we went to see my grandma a couple years ago, and we got there about an hour after she passed away. But I've heard stories, and I'm sure you've heard stories, of people who have died well. People who in their last breath, they're praising God, right? And they're encouraging their family members. They're encouraging them to live for God. I think this is probably how most of us would like to go out, right? That's, the kind, of the, that's kind of the picture-perfect deathbed scene, right? Surrounded by those who love you, surrounded by those who you've had an impact on, and you're, you're praising God. You know, I don't think any of us, you know, we probably don't want to go out like getting swept away in a tornado or an earthquake or a tsunami. Like, we don't want to die by natural disaster, I, as a kid, I always had this fear, like when we were drive, grew up in a small town, there was just one lane highway. Whenever a semi was coming, you know, I'm just like, they're going to hit us, and just this like fear. Like nobody wants to die getting taken out by a semi, right? We don't want to drop dead on the treadmill. We don't want to die in any of these unexpected ways. We would love to go out peacefully, again, pro- surrounded by those we love, proclaiming God's blessings upon them. And saying with confidence that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Wouldn't that be a great way to go out? Wouldn't that be a great last few words to be on your lips? It might sound strange to pray about your death. But I wonder if we really think about this. It's easy to pray, God, help me to honor you with my life. But do we ever pray, God, help me to honor you with my death? And none of us know, right? I mean, it could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. Right? Again, I shared that story of my grandpa, like, totally out of the blue. One day, all of a sudden, and you could be gone. Should we also be praying, God, help me to honor you with my death? And will our deaths result in praise and honor and glory to God? I think by the grace of God, this is what Jacob's death did. This is the longest deathbed scene that we have by far in Genesis. Abraham and Isaac's uh, deaths are, are very short stories about their deaths. It's the longest deathbed scene in the whole Bible, and it's followed by this preparation for burial. You may have never read the Bible and thought about mummies before, right? You might not have thought there was a connection in the Bible with mummies, but that's what happens here. Jacob is mummified at the beginning of chapter 50. The embalmers in Egypt were a special class of people that had secrets that for many, many generations 
for hundreds of years were never even written down. There's not even records going way back of the Egyptian embalming processes, something that was kind of a, kind of a secret class of people, and these, these secrets were passed on. They would, they would remove the internal organs. They would cut an incision and take out all the internal organs except for the heart. They would remove the brains out through the nose, which sounds really disgusting. Um, they would wash and pack the body in natron, which is a type of salt that is found in that part of the world. And the body was dehydrated for 40 days, and then it was wrapped in strips of cloth and placed in a coffin. And this process ranged from very simple, uh, for people who didn't have a lot of money and weren't of a high social class, to very elaborate uh, for the pharaohs and others who had the money and who had the status. I think there's something interesting here. I think this is an interesting picture of God's common grace. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is how God reveals himself through natural revelation, through the, the ways that people live. Even, for example, these pagan cultural practices like this that point to the truth of who God is. Why did the Egyptians do this? Why did the Egyptians mummify their bodies? Well, they actually had a belief that at some point in the future, the departed soul would be reunited with the body. And they wanted the bodies to be preserved so that at that future time, when the soul and the body were reunited, there was actually a body to be reunited to. And this points to a future hope beyond this life. Even in this pagan culture that wasn't worshiping God, that pointed to the reality of the longing that everyone has, right? The longing that they have for their souls and their bodies to be reunited. It's also interesting because how in the world was Jacob's body going to make it all the way back to Canaan without deteriorating along the way and stinking rottenly? It was a 300-mile journey. That's from here to Minnetonka, Minnesota, which is on the west side of the Twin Cities. Yes, exactly. That's four and a half hours in a car. Imagine the journey with horses and chariots and many of the people on foot, right? On ancient roads. That would have taken a long time. And we'll see this journey in a minute. But in the meantime, we're told that the Egyptians wept for Jacob for 70 days. This is incredible. Jacob has been in Egypt for 17 years. And remember who he was. He was a shepherd from the land of Canaan. And shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. Right? Jacob and his family were out in the sticks because they couldn't be around the Egyptians because they were an abomination to them. But, this is a picture of God's redemptive purposes for the nations. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. God used Joseph, Jacob's son, to save the whole land of Egypt to be a blessing to them. They were saved from famine, and God was at work. God was sovereignly at work, orchestrating human history for his purposes, moving the heart of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, in order to accomplish his own purposes. If God is powerful enough and cares enough about his people to fulfill these promises in such a dramatic fashion, why do we doubt that he even cares about the smallest details of our lives. 
We fret about things like finances. We fret about relationships. We fret about our future. We fret about our own death. And all the while, God reminds us over and over through his word that he is still on his throne. He was powerful enough to be orchestrating all these details in this story. He's still on his throne, and he's still powerful enough to orchestrate all the details in our lives. The next scene of this funeral procession is really something else. Beginning in 50 verse 4, if you read this carefully, you start to see some incredible connections with the story of the Exodus. Again, it's the book that's going to follow Genesis. It tells the story of God's people being slaves in Egypt. Because after Joseph died, there was a pharaoh that rose up that didn't know Joseph. He came into power. He was afraid of the people of Israel because they were multiplying greatly as God had promised. <clears throat> and he makes plans to try and exterminate them. But God delivers his people. So this next section is, we're going to be looking at Jacob's personal exodus. Israel, the man, has his personal exodus, which foreshadows the exodus of the people of Israel 400 years later. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor and a commentator, calls this the proto-exodus, or a dress rehearsal for the real exodus. And there are a couple things in here that are hugely significant in making these connections. The first one is this language of go up or that they went up. It's used six times throughout this passage in these verses 4 through 13. And when God appears to Moses at the burning bush and tells him that he's going to deliver the people, God uses this same language. He says, I promise that I will bring you up. It's the same language that's used here as go up or went up. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's promise 400 years later is reflected here in this idea of going up. So this is a foreshadowing here of God's deliverance of his people. The second really interesting parallel is that Pharaoh sends chariots and horsemen as an escort for the people, (laughs) right? What happened in the Exodus? There were chariots and horsemen, but what were they doing? They were chasing them down, trying to kill them, right? And what did God do? (sighs) Overthrew them in the Red Sea. What a contrast, right? Here the Pharaoh is sending his best horsemen, his best chariots, up to bless Jacob and his, his sons in this funeral procession. And in the Exodus, it's going to be the opposite picture. Another interesting thing, most scholars agree that the route that they took here is the exact same route that they will take 400 years later in the Exodus. So it's another amazing picture of God preparing his people. Again, this is a dress rehearsal. This is a preparation for what is to come. And then we have another picture of impact on outsiders. The Canaanites, they see the Egyptians mourning for Jacob and they are moved. This is in verse 11. It's reflected in the name of the place, Abel Mizraim, which means uh, the mourning of Israel, or the mourning of Egypt. 
And these Canaanites see the Egyptians mourning for Jacob, and they are moved. It's hard not to hear in this the echoes of the Jews in John chapter 11 after Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. You remember what they said? See how he loved him. See how he loved him. So God is establishing a testimony among the nations here based on the response of his people to death. In this case, it's the Egyptians, but they are connected with the Israelites here. There's a testimony to the nations as they see God's people mourning, as they see God's people probably in many ways rejoicing over the life of Jacob. Again, I want to encourage us in this. We don't, we don't like to talk a lot about death in our culture. We don't like to talk about death in this day and age. It's avoided in most TV shows and movies. Um, some of you might say, well, there's death everywhere. Yes, there's death everywhere, but we don't deal with death, right? There's not a lot of great deathbed scenes. You're not going to see a deathbed scene like this. You're not going to see a story like this. You're going to see a bunch of people die and get blown up and get killed and all that. But that's it. And we're just desensitized to it, right? We don't deal with it in this kind of way. We don't take the time. We don't take 70 days to mourn. How can we be a countercultural witness in this area? We talked about it all last summer, this past summer, right, in Ecclesiastes. As Christians, we need to... We need to talk about death. We need to be okay because death is not the end, right? How can we be countercultural? I think the answer comes in what I think, in my opinion, is the most significant verse in this whole section. And it's the last verse, verse 14. It says, After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him. To bury his father. And I want to say, why? Why go back? Right? The famine has already been over for 10 years. Why go back? Joseph was responsible for saving all of Egypt. Certainly, Pharaoh would have said, hey, thank you, right? You've done your job. You and your people go back to Canaan. Enjoy your land, right? <clears throat> but they returned. I think there's two practical reasons. The first is that in verse 5, Joseph promised Pharaoh that he would return, so he's keeping his word. That's a good thing. The second is that all the women and children and the livestock are still in Egypt. And actually, that's a, I forgot to mention that. Parallels to the Exodus. Moses is saying, let us go that, that we might worship, Right? We might worship God, and Pharaoh keeps kind of changing things, and he say, okay, you can go, but leave all the women and children and livestock here, right? Just the men, you guys can go up. Finally, they, they eventually all go up when God delivers them. But So the second, the second thing there, all the women and children and livestock are in Egypt. They're not gonna, the, the men aren't just going to stay in Canaan and be like, well, I hope they you know, do okay. But I think there's a greater reason why Joseph returned to Egypt. And this is a hugely important reason. Joseph was not unaware of the promises that God made to Abraham. 
In chapter 15, God made a, a covenant with Abraham. You remember he put Abraham to sleep. Abraham cut the animals and laid them out. God put Abraham to sleep and, and went through in a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And he gave this promise. And we've talked about this several times. But God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You will be sojourners, you will be servants, and you will be afflicted. Why would anyone choose that lifestyle? Why would you go back knowing that is what is waiting for you? But this is the call to Christian discipleship, isn't it? Why would any of us choose this? Why would any of us choose to be sojourners, to be servants, to be afflicted? It's because our Lord himself chose that. Sojourner. Jesus was the ultimate sojourner, the ultimate resident alien. He's the one who created all of this. He created the world. And he came to be a sojourner, to be an alien in the world that he created. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just think about how ridiculous that sounds, right? You made it all, and you don't even have a place to lay your head. Sojourner. Servant. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the ultimate servant. He laid down his life so that we might live. Afflicted. Isaiah chapter 53, which was written more than 700 years before Christ was born, describes Jesus' substitutionary work, describes his death in our place. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And then listen to this, speaks of his burial. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No elaborate funeral. Laid in a borrowed tomb. No property that he owned. But the tomb really wasn't that necessary, was it? He was just going to kind of borrow it for a couple nights. Because death couldn't hold him. Why would anyone believe that, though? Why would anyone believe that this guy who lived 2,000 years ago claimed to rise from the dead? Why would anyone become a Christian and say, I want to follow that guy? Right? I want to follow this obscure guy who lived on the other side of the world in a culture that's totally different than ours. Why would we give up all that this world has to offer to follow that man? It's because the Egyptians were right. There is more beyond this world. Right? They weren't totally right, but they were on the right track. That there is hope beyond the grave. That there is hope beyond this world. That there is more to live for. Think about Pharaoh, right? The most powerful man, all the gold, everything. And still, that wasn't enough. The elaborate ceremonies, the elaborate burial that Pharaoh would have had because there's this future hope that they have. They saw it. I'm going to close by quoting for the fourth time Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 and then his exhortation that he closes with. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It would appear that Joseph lived the rest of his days in Egypt with this forward-looking faith, knowing that his labor in the Lord is not in vain, looking forward to God's promise of deliverance. I love verse 58 that this section closes with, and I'm not really big on, like, life verses. If somebody asks you, like, what's your life verse, I don't have a life verse. Uh, I'm not big on, like, theme verses for certain things, but I feel like God has really impressed this verse upon me for, for this year and this next season of life, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing in that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that this would be the cry of your hearts as well. That we would be steadfast. That we would be immovable. That we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord wherever he has us. Whatever circles we're in. That we would know that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And that there is a greater hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for how we can come here and we can talk about death and we can talk about dying and we can talk about the hope that we have. It's not something that we need to be afraid of because Jesus has conquered the grave. Death has no victory and death has no sting. May we with confidence be able to say those words. May we look to the victory that was won for us on the cross. And may we live with confidence and boldness in that victory and in that reality. Thank you for the hope that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.